This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Coming up on the WSJ Speakeasy podcast, we are talking with Ezra Edelman, all things O.J. Simpson and his documentary, O.J. Made in America. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Wall Street Journal's Speakeasy Podcast. My name is Mike Ayers. I'm an arts and entertainment reporter here at the Journal. Today we are joined by documentary filmmaker Ezra Edelman, whose latest film is airing on ESPN this week. It's called O.J. Made in America and is a five-part, nearly eight-hour examination of O.J. Simpson's life, the murder trials, but placed within a broader cultural context of race, the police, and celebrity culture all intersecting since OJ's rise as a as a football star at the University of Southern California in the late 60s. Ezra, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. So, there's a lot of information in this film. Um, you know, the viewers presented with over the course of Made in America, you make the case early on that OJ, he kind of transcended the normal black experience in in Los Angeles, that his athletic prowess gave him this, gave him an experience that made him distant from what what people of color were truly experiencing at the time. Um, I, f- I feel like that was extremely important to start out with. Well, gave him entree, you know, sort of to a world in which he could do what he wanted, live where he wanted, and didn't have to be defined by or sort of held down by or even acknowledging of his race. And that's sort of, that's the first part of the sort of race versus celebrity thing. You know, oh, you run a football, people seem to be down with you because of that, and the rules change. The rules change, and it was very interesting to watch, um, you know, how he embraced those rules changing because it's very it's very hard to figure out whether he was very cognizant of it or he just was just kind of dopey and going along with we know a yes man essentially like here go here do this smile for this camera and uh you'll be okay and he kept seeing how he'd be okay and he was like yeah this is wonderful well i actually think that you you hit the nail right in the head in terms of those you know he got to usc in 1967 he was a black kid growing up in the projects in san francisco went to junior college for two years he arrives at usc this place that is almost all white extremely conservative a lot of wealthy students and you know the football team is really the sort of engine you know of pride you know at that place and so here you have a guy who many people still to this day would say is the greatest college football player they've ever seen like bar none that's how good OJ was. Right. And so when you you combine all those things together, even though it's also 1967, 68, and, you know, in America, one of the more tumultuous periods, his transcendence as an athlete at that place, again, allowed him to sort of, you know, immediately, you know, I think people sunk their, you know, their mitts into, you know, their hooks into him saying, like, look what we can do with you. 
But I also think he was in a world where you have all these people who are idolizing you and that you might go, oh, I, s- I see how I could get over here. I see how I can make this work for me. And I like this. And so I think there's a little bit of both. I mean, I'm I from the get-go, before I even started this, that was a period of time that I was really fascinated by. How do you go from arriving on campus two years out, you know, after junior college, the world really doesn't know you, to before you've ever played it down in the NFL, you are starring in Chevrolet commercials, RC Cola commercials, and not just that, you're the first black athlete in history to be doing that. It's that transformation's amazing. And so I think the fact is, it was a little bit of both. He had an ambition from the time he was young to be famous. And I think arriving at that place at that time, it was perfect for him. So more on those lines, I mean, what struck me early on was how stiff OJ seemed. I mean, he seemed so uncomfortable talking to the media in those those early days. He just kind of like smiled and and nodded. At times it seemed he was just really scared or just kind of dumbfounded. I couldn't figure out if he was just, maybe he's just an inarticulate guy at that Mm -hmm. point in his life. And, you know, a lot of us are when we're 20 years old, you know, we're not that um, quick on our feet. What would you have done if as a 20 or 21 year old, someone was thrusting a television camera in front of you, you know, in your face and being, oh, let's talk, Mike. Which, in the grand scheme of things, too, for 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 them, you know, that also is a new thing. You know, TVs being in people's homes, the the wanting of to talk to athletes, you know, at every given moment. Um, you know, we do it now. You know, we've been doing it for the last, you know, 40, 50 years. But it, at that point, it was still kind of relatively new, I, I would think. Well, I mean, that's even there's, a, you know, the, the, the game that sort of really put, like, solidified. OJ stardom was this game in 1967 against their crosstown rivals UCLA, who was ranked number one at the time, and it was this huge, as big of a game as it was in Los Angeles because it was huge. It was this big rivalry, and they're both ranked in the top five. It was also this huge national of televised event with these two sort of you know his, you know historic programs, and if you even look at the footage, it's like talking about the amount of cameras that are on the field. It's really the advent, like almost right then, of of slow motion replay, and you know you're right. It's when we started to absorb athletes, both on and off the field, in a different way. Being able to sort of you know look at them under the microscope in a different way, but also enjoy the beauty and the grace of someone like OJ in a way that no one had previously been able to. And so there is also that, you know, that's part of this thing where when you're watching. You know, and I'm cognizant of it because I've, you know, watched this thing thousands of times and put this thing together where you don't know how much people, how much a viewer is going to absorb these little things. And like they're going to take it in of like, oh, right, this is actually part of this greater narrative, which is the stage that he's on at this time, how it's being covered. And then what that what are the further ramifications for that? Because in many ways, the other thing that you know, that period of time does, you know, it's, it's not just by the way that he's answering questions as a 21 year old. It's that he's being asked to take part in political movements. And again, when I think of myself at, at that age, I mean, I was aware of the world, but if someone showed up at my door and said, Hey, Ezra, you, 
you want to be a part of this? I'd be like, dude, I'm going to go and eat my cereal on my couch. Like, I don't think I'm ready for this. Regardless, by the way, of my personal politics. Now, having said this, there's clearly, this is why OJ, he's not that quite, he can't, he's not a patsy because he knew what he was doing. Now, someone might have gotten in his ear and said, dude, the way, if you want this stuff, you want fame, you want commercial stardom, you want to be loved by everybody, you can't align yourself with them. The, the, the black athletes who are militant, political, are scary, who white America doesn't know what to do with. And, but he might have done that on his own. He might have been like, ah, that's not, for, that's not me and it's not for me because I'm trying to go over here. I mean, when you think about uh, celebrity now and with social media or whatever and how control they are of their brand, their message, celebrities can't go off brand, politicians can't go off brand, they can't go off message, and, you know, they have all these tools at their disposal, you know, that is, of course, a new thing that we continue to be fascinated by, but, you know, the OJ case, he, it would be pretty pretty interesting if that was the situation where he you know either had people telling him this you know at an early on or you know like if you want to go down this road this isn't going to happen but if you want this to happen you should go down this road and he just you know politely nodded and declined it seemed like you know it's like i, I don't know but like, here's the, here's the thing so famously and i you know, this is going to be the only time when I refer to something in a television series that was about OJ that I still haven't watched. But the fact that there is a line, you know, that, that is uttered by Cuba Gooding when, in, you know, they're talking about playing the race card. And he's like, I'm not black, I'm OJ. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. I don't think he went around saying that. He said it once in 1967, okay? And it was in response to being asked to be a part of the Olympic Project for Human Rights, this movement that was being started by Harry, Harry Edwards talking about boycotting the 68 Olympic Games. So it's like there is a point to which, you know, black or white, you can empathize with the idea of not wanting to be defined by your race or held down by your race. But then you cross the line. Then you go into a sense of denying who you are and denying your heritage. And like, so it's one thing you say, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Well, that's okay. So he believed he was exceptional. So he believed in the OJ exceptionalism, I believe that. But then when you get to a story, I don't want to really ruin the doc, but when you sort of, it's fine. Like, you get to a story where he's sitting around and he tells a reporter, you know, proudly, you know, about being at a wedding and overhearing a white person saying, hey, look, there's OJ with all these, can I say that word? Niggers? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, there's OJ with all these niggers. Look at OJ with those all those niggers. And, you know, and the reporter's like, man, that must have been terrible for you. And he's like, no, don't you see? That's great. They didn't look at me as black. They saw me as OJ. Then you're like, mm, I don't know what's, something's going on and it's not correct. Oh, and so it's not correct. It's not correct. And so then you're like, no, some, he's, there's, there is this schism that is starting to form in his head that, you know, healthy people and uh don't don't we don't think about those things in that way and so that's where you know you go from something where i you know that's where my empathy for him at that time start, you know it's it's gone it starts to go out the door yeah yeah, yeah for sure i mean this kind of dovetails into what you were talking about earlier about the about the endorsements how he was you know hurt they loved him and he was one of the first black people to get 
paid on such a national level to be such a national face of a campaign, a multimedia campaign. Um, and I feel like this exposure, you know, helped people rally behind him in the 90s to a degree because they, you know, he crossed barriers in some ways, even though like back then he may have been seen as a selfish person. But maybe 20 years later to the people who were like five or six years old, just watching TV and seeing OJ on the commercials, they have a different memory of him. And they're like, no, he's a trailblazer. He was on TV when no people like me was on TV getting paid. Well, and by the way, that's, first of all, matter of factly, like he was a trailblazer. Yeah. He forged a path for himself that previously had been unavailable to black athletes. He, he created that mold. So he begat Michael Jordan, who begat Tiger Woods. You know, not only a black athlete pitchman, but then a non-political black athlete pitchman right, right. who was who was specifically interested in protecting, you know, who the image, the image, right. the image, and sort of what came with that. So, oh, uh, Republicans buy sneakers too. Michael Jordan famously said when he did not want to endorse Harvey Gantt against you know Jesse Helms in the Senate race. Um, in 88, I believe. Um, and you're like, what? You know, you're allowed to use your voice for good. But like, oh, no, then you become a like he's a politician in a different way. Right. And not in a good way. Right. Because um, you actually haven't you have a voice and you can affect change, meaningful change. You know, you don't have to do it every day. You don't have to get on your soapbox every day. But if you have an opportunity to affect change, you know, it's a big question. What is your obligation? But what I was going to say is that one um that paradigm that he created is real. Two, I don't know that a lot of the things that we're saying about OJ in the late 60s and early 70s was absorbed by anybody. Yeah. I don't know that anybody knew that. I think he was a football star and the pride that came and the, 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 the joy and then in turn the pride that came with seeing a black athlete. By the way, and he's, he was a cool dude. I mean, like he, you know, in the 70s, you're like, who wasn't down with OJ? Everybody was. You know, and that's also what you need to realize. This isn't a guy who's like, you know, when you think of where OJ might have been culturally in the late 80s, early 90s, like he's still on NBC every week during the football season. He was still on Naked Gun movies. He, you know, he was very much in the public eye. I mean, yeah, and he had sort of gone to a point of being just a celebrity, but beyond the, like a celebrity, like he just was on Hollywood Squares. Like he had still had some cachet, but what you, what people didn't realize was, this was the most – I think there was like a some friend – this is, again, I'm quoting a friend of mine who remembers, you know, as a little girl in their house, they had a, the book of lists. And it was an old one from 1977. And he was number one, like the most popular guy in America. More popular than the president, more popular. And so generationally, if you don't get that, you can't possibly understand the shock that we all felt – when those murders happened in 1994 because it wasn't just this guy didn't seem capable of i mean it was like it's not just he was popular he was the coolest dude around and he admitted goodness it was shocking it was shocking i mean i mean it's it's the the double life that this person lived and it's hard to think of other ones that have emerged that you know are on are on this this level because of what we've been talking about. Like he exuded coolness. Like everybody was down with OJ. 
even if you didn't grow up in uh, the 60s or 70s watching football, if you were born in the late 70s, um, there's a good chance that you watched Naked Gun movies and you thought he was hilarious. Correct. And you know why? why? Because he was. He was hilarious. <laughs> um, he was He was kind of the the total package in that public persona. And by that time, by the 80s, you know, he had he had mastered that craft, I feel like. You know, he had mastered that that image like his charisma like it was it was night and day from like when he was that kid that gawky kid on the camera after the games in the late 60s 100 15 years later completely different and it's you know the other thing is yeah what happens when you get that much reinforcement from a young age and before by the way even got to usc he really he already was that athletically gifted he was always that good looking and he was always naturally charming now, which might not have come out again in these these first interviews you see, where he's really on the national stage for the first time, but he got comfortable pretty quick. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're here with Ezra Edelman talking about OJ Made in America airing on ESPN this week. I'm Veronica Dagger. Do you want to know how the rich invest, spend, and protect their money? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, WSJ Speakeasy. Your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Welcome back to the Speakeasy Podcast. My name is Mike Ayers. I'm an arts and entertainment reporter here at The Journal. Today we've been talking with Ezra Edelman of the new film on ESPN, OJ, Made in America. It's five parts. It's um, it's a healthy eight hours long. It looks at OJ Simpson's life from a whole bunch of different uh, angles. Um, Ezra, so you got a lot of great access to interviews from, from all sides of people that have were involved with his life, um, with the trial. Uh, what was it like getting um, Nicole Brown and Go- Ron Goldman's family to talk? Uh, difficult. I mean, um, the Brown family, um, they don't really like talking about this, not surprisingly. Um, and I do think there needs to be said about this or anything else that, I mean, look, this is an almost eight hour documentary that, you know, is getting all, it's very visible and we're sitting here talking about this because of it. None of this, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it if two people were not tragically, brutally murdered. And the fact that you know, I can't imagine what it would be like to have to endure um, people having calling you up like all the time and saying, we want to talk about this, you know. Um, you know, I think Denise Brown, who was very visible at the trial, like wouldn't talk to us because she has been so um, out there over the years. And so I was happy to be able to, it was great to be able to talk to Tanya, who is the youngest sister. She wasn't as close to Nicole as Denise, but, you know, still having her perspective from within that family is, is invaluable. And then, you know, Fred Goldman, same thing. I mean, you can tell by watching him in the film that this is still something that very much affects him, as it should. And he, you know, if there is something that's going to be done, that even if it transcends OJ, the story, you know, the fact is, I can see how painful that must be, but at least I know from his standpoint, if you know, he can use this as a as a platform to have people remember Ron, then that's a good thing. I mean, what's crazy, what you just said, is that, you know, he was 
having to constantly remind people of those facts during the trial. Oh, like yeah. that he's been doing that for for 20 years now, which is it, it's you know un, unfathomable for a person to have to have to keep keep doing that. Oh, I mean and yeah, I mean look, I know that people have and I know cuz we talked about it, you know, he has gotten some criticism over the years and you're like the fact that he even could be subject to criticism, you know, as a result of an episode where his son was murdered because of how outspoken he's been and because of how sort of um, uh, steadfast he's been in sort of trying to, you know, go after OJ. First to find him responsible for the murders, which sort of he, he gained that satisfaction during the civil trial, but also then to then actually get the judgment financially, you know, as a result of the of the civil trial, which, as you see in the last part of the film, is sort of part of this narrative, which is OJ's ability to sort of skirt that responsibility, um, and ultimately taking part in sort of releasing the book if I did it, which he sort of the, the rights reverted back to the family, and then they published it, and they published it partly because to them it read like a confession it's for the whole world to sort of hear that oh no this is OJ in his own words saying in effect. I actually am resp- I did this, um, meaning the murders. Um, but yeah, he got criticized because people thought it was just a it was a ploy to get money. Um, and so it's a very weird thing to be in that position because I don't know what you're supposed to do. Because I would say for almost everyone involved in the story, from the families to the lawyers, that even if you respectfully have been like, I opt out, I choose to go away. The world won't let it go. No, the world. They, they will. It will not let it go. And I, I, I am. My heart goes out to everyone. That like, and and this is obviously incredibly ironic for me to be saying as someone who has then been part of this machine. Even if I've also been very, um, I'm very cognizant of it and very respectful of that fact. And the whole point of this is to been like. But I'm not like everyone else in terms of what I'm trying to do. I'm really trying to approach this in a more thoughtful way and talking about all of this history and all of this. Th- like, I'm not, there's no gotcha. There's no sensationalism with this. But that's a that's a, 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 a very tall wall you have to get, past, get over oh, yeah. to get these people to sit and talk to you and trust you. And it's very humbling that all these people... Um, some of whom have not talked for a very long time about this, chose to participate, you know, and I, you know, and I take that very seriously and that they, they, they did choose to do that and were as open and honest with me as, as they were. Well, you mentioned uh, a moment ago about OJ kind of his ability to skirt the issue, you know, the issue of the of what happened with the with the murders when we get to the arrest you know you it's you know if you didn't pay attention at the time or you you know just a little kid or you just forgot you know you have throngs of people supporting him free oj even though you know at least 
Some people were very aware of his violent past at that point, that he had a violent history with his wife. You have Al Michaels saying, literally saying there was nothing in the past that indicated he would do something, which is completely false. That he were capable of capable, doing something, capable of like, doing doing something. something like this. Yeah. When the exact opposite was actually true. He had things in the past that completely indicated that he could, he could do this. It, it just felt like... You know, various different groups of people, and this is one of the things that is so interesting about this about this film is that you have all these different groups of people, and they all kind of gave him a free pass. They wanted to not believe this is true, but they all had different reasons for wanting to believe that. And the whole that's his, it starts to really come to a head with the intersection of all, you know, race, culture, celebrity, sport. You know, violence against women, like all like police, police life, you know, it all came together, it felt like, right at that point. I mean, it's true. And uh, and that's why, I mean, it's now maybe it's like it's a running joke, okay, that the doc's almost eight hours long. But there's a reason. And in, in some ways, like, of course, I'm the, as the person who directed the film, I'm going to say, well, of course it justifies that. Like, <laughs> but it really does. I mean, I think that part of the problem is the way that we've treated this and tried to absorb it and even in the even since then in these little it's done in okay so yeah anyone okay some one individual wrote a book okay or maybe there's a two-hour documentary okay but like there is a there is a a totality to this and interconnectedness to all of these themes by the way beyond race beyond celebrity that there is not one thing you can reduce this to about OJ himself, about what you think happened the night of the murders, about what you think went into the verdict, about what you think was the reaction to the verdict. All of these things are a confluence of a lot of factors, including, yes, how OJ was able, was enabled to live his life the way he did um, and get away with stuff like up to that point. And it's complicated. It's very complicated and unless and you can't just say it unless you sort of you sort of have to emotionally engage with all of these different people and you almost ha- and you have to engage with the different media things. You have to sort of see Roy Firestone doing an interview with OJ and it has to come in a way. So you're re you're sort of absorbing this all over again. It's pouring all it's versus like, yeah, there could be someone that says and he was enabled for 10 years, you know, for and it's like, okay. Like, it'll wash right over you really quickly. It's the same with the notion of emotionally engaging with this history of the LAPD and the community, with seeing these incidents over and over again and and how awful they are. Because you need to engage with it, you know, if you're a white person who doesn't either know about this history, doesn't have to think about these things, you know, seem to think that, oh, yeah, maybe there was that thing with Rodney King and that explains a lot. No, why don't you sit and engage with 50 years of this history? And then maybe you'll have a better sense of why so many people reacted the way they did at the verdict. But unless you do that, I still think where then you could leave this story being like, I still don't, like, why were you doing that? I, f- I feel like back, you know, in in the 90s, you know, memory, little little hazy, but just the connections between Rodney King and then getting to OJ in that city, those two years, and how hurt the community was, and then how this was now presented, and it became, you know, completely larger than life and became a global thing. 
But those connections, were they really there back then, or are they just now kind of emerging that we can, you know, kind of go back and look and trace, you know, a community's feelings towards the police, towards planting evidence, towards towards all these things that, you know, kind of connected O.J. and the Rodney King situation, but just not in an obvious way. Well, I think it was very much there. I think it was yeah. very much there, but from a one-sided perspective. Right. And so I think that there was enough things happening during the trial that if you were not black, you were not you were not as um, willing to sort of you, – you, you weren't thinking about it in the same way. And I think if nothing else, I think the Rodney King thing was definitely there. Now, w- w- were people talking about Latasha Harlan's? You know, a 15-year-old girl who went into a convenience store to buy some orange juice and then got gunned down um, by the Korean shop owner and then who didn't subsequently spend a day in jail. I mean, again, you wonder, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was happening with the riots and as far as the black Korean tension, that's partly where it came from. You know, there's a lot of things that weren't talked about, but it's not, but for me, it's also the totality of the history, which is this wasn't this cauldron that's just sort of started bubbling up in 1991. This was something that went back, you know, again, 27 years before the city burned in 92, Watts burned in 65. And so these are, and so I think it's that history, I think, for black residents of Los Angeles, for the people in that jury box, was very apparent. And that's why the defense went there. You know, it's, it is hard to know what completely was apparent, but clearly it wasn't apparent to a white audience because there was such a lack of understanding to that investment in the trial from black America, from black Angelinos, for people who would go, how the hell could you think he's innocent? Well, because the way I look at the, way, the, the police and what they do and what they're capable of is not the way you look at it. Yeah, of course. It makes sense. Um, and I think there was a lot of people who did think that at the time, but clearly like what it was was these two tracks that were never going to intersect <laughs> Like, I think this, I can't possibly understand how you think this because I haven't experienced that. I have not walked a day in your shoes. And that's what's amazing to me, like, where people today are saying, I had no idea. You know, and I'm like, really? Well, I is it that confusing? I don't mean to be like, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that hard to understand why people were, were that um, overjoyed at that decision. But here's the thing, even that gets reduced. That got reduced to, oh, you're cheering a murder. I'm like, come on. Like you're cheering a murder going free? No, it's there's a lot of things going on there. There's a lot of things, and I w- if you can watch this now and come to a greater understanding again from a white perspective, then then that's correct. Now from a black perspective, if you watch this 20 years later and you're looking at those same reactions, you might go, "Damn, what a hollow victory! Like what what were we doing?" I think there's a little mm-hmm. bit of that too, you know, and because it's like nothing changed. Right. You know, maybe, maybe because, right. and then how you even look at this, like, is it progress or is it sort of noteworthy that a black guy who is on trial for killing two white people gets acquitted? Maybe, but he's such a unique figure. What it, you know, in terms, because he is famous and he is rich and he could afford that defense. So it's both, it's a both and universe. He is the example of a black guy being in this position who got the same privileges as a rich white guy. But he also is a rich guy. And so what is it more about? And a famous guy. And that's what makes this story so complicated. 
Um, yeah, it, it, the, it's very complicated. The, towards the end, the juries, um, the, the jurors that you interviewed, the, the one woman admitting basically that she, you know, let them off as, as payback. Um, was that known, you know? Or? Well, no, but that, so here's the thing, that was thought of, you know, sort of almost assumed by, I think, an indignant white public that, hey, look, there's a bunch of black jurors who... Had anybody gone on record saying no, that? No, no, not that I know, not yeah. I know of. And so, but I, you know, look, here's the thing. But I also think it's as important to note that there's another black woman who is a juror who says the opposite. And so that we want to monolithically just, like, look at the jurors and, like, hey, there's nine black people in the jury. There's eight black women. They voted this way because of that they voted this way because oh they're gonna quit the black guy and they were like they were it's like no one of them says that another one says yeah i don't i think the prosecution failed to meet their burden in this case that's what i think which in a lot of ways you could make that case you can see a lot of people's different perspectives as well um one of the things i was i was completely amazed about and I probably shouldn't have been but I nonetheless I was was that OJ had a an autograph signing business from jail he made millions of dollars while he was waiting to go on trial uh, signing items were there things that un, that you uncovered that just blew you away like I just did not expect that I mean I you know you, you think of somebody in jail for for murder they're like they're sad you're supposed to be sad and depressed in jail Right, he would he well, maybe he was, but he was also making well, making money. Well, what you saw, and I'll try to answer your question in a second. But what you saw uh, is that, and people have said this, even people who were part of the trial, right? Seeing it put together in this way, where you see the sort of initial uh, OJ in that that week to you know maybe a few weeks after the murders, and he does look sort of defeated. He looks out of it, and then like. Oh, it turns around. He like gets his mojo back. Something snapped. Like and it's like, and he's back to being OJ. And he's like, oh no, I'm. This is a game that I'm going to win. And you just see him like sort of snap to into this role, and that's part of it. Which is, I'm going to win this thing. I'm going to get the best lawyers. I'm going to get the best team together. I already have money. How do I make more money? Okay, let's do this. And and the, you see that visual transformation in this film in a way that would be hard to do if you were just like just like you you don't know what it's like to get taller. It's like when you're living through this at the time, you don't really engage with it that way. But in the course of a few hours watching a film, you start to, you sort of get that. Um, but there were look. This story is so damn weird. Um, and I th- sort of knew that from the beginning. And so the idea of what was more surprising or crazy or revealing to me, I'm just like at a certain point, I'm like, nah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's all like there are pieces of footage you'd see and you're like, like him taking the flag down from his house towards the end of the movie. And it looks like this very emotional thing. And then you realize he's just playing for the cameras because he wants to sell the video to TMZ or to like wherever. And you're like, oh, yeah. But that calls into question whenever we think of there's a few moments in this. This is the celebrity thing. Who is that guy? How does it, how did you get all this um, this home video footage? Obviously, we didn't have phones with cameras on them recording every walking step. So, you know, it's VHS. It's probably you know those little it's, tapes. It's, it, but there's there's all. 
I mean, it's maybe this is a joke of something new with our country, right? We did, we didn't have phones, but there are clearly always people around trying to monetize things f- from jump. And so with him, it was the same thing. Whether it's him signing autographs or we're f- shooting video with a, you know, a crass VHS camera, you know, that's just he he's a guy who's who was in the public eye since he was you know 19 years old, and his whole his whole life was about fame. And he lived a life that sort of spoke to that. How do you track down like her, like their wedding footage? We, we, you know, we, we, you know, our producers did an incredible job, just sort of canvassing anyone and everyone to get every piece yeah. of footage that exists. Yeah, I mean, th- those behind the scenes moments, just you know. Because you can do, you could probably do something with just media clips alone, you know. Because right. there's so much footage. Well, I mean, out there was there. an entire doc that ESPN did at Thirty for Thirty called June Seventeenth, Nineteen Ninety Four. Right, it's about right, just right. that one day, but it's right. all archival footage. That's yeah, you all can it just is. do an archival thing, but um, you know, it it just painted this. It just gave a even more interesting window into how this person acted and how they spoke to people behind closed doors right. you know when their when their brand was turned off you know yeah. they thought they were you know not going to be on in, in public um i mean it just gets to the fact of who's it's really hard to know who this guy is and like it doesn't matter how many times it's funny doing interviews I'm like so tell me what was happening with oj i was like i don't have any idea i mean like any more than you do like i've talked to people but, like, clearly he has a capacity to be a lot of different things at the same time. Yes. And that is part of the whole point yes. of the story. Do you think OJ's story is over? <sighs> I mean, yeah. I mean, part six of the documentary is coming when he gets parole. <laughs> you know, when he when he goes all Robert Durst on me. <laughs> <laughs> time for a chat. <laughs> I don't know. I hope I hope my part in the story is over. <laughs> probably a good thing to uh to wish um what's next for you are you gonna uh, continue to look at sports culture you know i've done a lot of sports done a lot of sports i've done a lot of sports and if, if anything this has i think been a nice potentially a nice um you know project to sort of connect out of that arena i mean there is this obviously a huge sports component in this both him as an athlete and how he's treated and all this sort of issues surrounding the sports world and racing sports um but it's about it's not a sports film Mm-mm. and i mean there's a level to which for the things i've been interested in in that arena i might be a little i might be all tapped out at the moment so not to say i'm going to do more sports i mean not to say i'm never going to do more sports but that's not what i where i'm going to go at the moment i just couldn't tell you exactly where i'm going to go you're gonna reboot Naked Gun, aren't you? That would be incredible. <laughs> I would like to. I would like to. I'll, I'll, David Zucker is the the first person I'm calling when I'm. I mean, look, if we can have more movies that make us laugh, then I think we'll have done a good thing. Having said that, I don't know that after doing an eight hour documentary about this, which is so like tragic, that if I called someone up and said, "You know what I want to do now? I want to do a comedy," I don't know that they would think I'm the right person to do that. Baby steps. Baby steps, that's right. Ezra, thanks for joining us today. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Mike. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast. And become a subscriber on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify. 
And now look for us on the Google Play Music app. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.